to another Comic Source Comic Boom collaboration. This is your DC Spotlight for May 30th, 2023. I say this a lot of times. I'll remind everybody once again. When there's a fifth Tuesday for DC, fifth Wednesday for regular books, whatever. It happens four times a year. Those are often lighter weeks. Publishers, at least the big two, often use it as a, a week to get caught up on books that are a little bit late, that have been running late. Uh, or a lot of times they'll put specials or annuals. So no exception this week. We have DC Pride 2023, which I I think it's 80 pages of story slash pinups or so. I mean, our press preview is 100 pages, but there are some, there's multiple covers and what have you. There's also a foreword from Phil Jimenez. It was very heartfelt. And then there are some, I guess you'd say retrospectives on the life of Rachel Pollock, who was uh, an artist for many, many years. She was in her 70s. I think she was 77. She passed away. She was active in the the pride community. So there's a lot of remembrances in the back that talk about her impact and her life and what have you. So it kind of swelled the issue, but it's very, very good. I think in the past we've done a separate DC pride episode because it's so big. There's so many stories. Since there's only three other books we're going to talk about, we'll probably cover them all here. We may not touch on every story. Um, also, Detective Comics, I guess it's just running a little late, is also out this week. And then we've got pa- Power Girl Special, which is more than 20 pages. And then the Icon versus Hardware, issue three, which is also more than 20 pages. So even though there's fewer books this week, it, it felt like somewhat of a, a big week uh, in a lot of ways. So um, <clears throat> Excuse me. I thought overall it was a pretty solid week, though. Uh, I enjoyed DC Pride. Detective Comics is kind of the best issue of that. It, it's been around in a while. Power Girl sort of had its ups and downs for me. I have mixed feelings about that. And then Icon and Hardware probably land somewhere in the middle. So overall, a solid week. Um, the biggest thing I th- take away is like, what? May 30th? Where is this year going? Uh, what, what were your thoughts okay. on the week overall? Well, I'm batting three for four. I I was I was very surprised with with uh, DC Pride, and I'll, I'll I'll give my reasons when we when we review it. Uh, but I was uh, it impressed me. I I I was expecting just more stories that were boring stories that just happened to have LGBTQ characters. But I was pleasantly surprised that the stories had substance and they had a purpose. Uh, most of them did, and I was actually impressed with it uh, because I was more interested in the story, and I thought that this was a really good story. And independent of the sexuality of the characters, which I think Pride, frankly, ironically enough, they they focus too much on on their orientation as opposed to just telling good stories in the past. But this, I thought, was one of the best Pride compilations that DC's put out yet, and, I, and, uh, and for reasons which I'll go into. And uh, Icon and Hardware, wow, I <laughs> took a turn that. It, a twist on the time travel narrative that I thought was going to be a little tropey, but it surprised me. And Detective Comics, I really enjoyed. Uh, but Power Girl was a miss for me, and and we'll get into it when as we discuss it. But uh, overall, I saw th- three out of four, so I was pleasantly surprised. Yeah, I'll, I'm going to push back on you on the Pride thing just a little bit. I mean, I totally get where you're coming from, because I think last year, compared to the previous year and compared to this year, yeah, I got to say it was a little bit of a down year. And you're right. The stories, they I don't know if they focus too much on the orientation of the characters or there just wasn't a lot of substance. But yeah, it didn't because two years ago, it was really good. And the stories, 
felt like there was they were purposeful. It felt like a celebration of being queer, and they were just really, really good. Last year, for whatever reason, didn't quite all come together. Was it was it good? It was probably good. Was it great? No. Two years ago, it was great. This one's bordering on great as well. I don't know. You, you have good. the benefit. You have the benefit of a better memory than me, my friend. I, I don't remember the one from two years ago. The other thing that I base that I'm basing that on is I remember because I think we did a separate one two years ago, and I remember the download numbers went crazy, and people were talking about it for weeks and weeks. Um, the and then the one last year, it it sort of I don't want to say it fizzled, but it, it came and went much quicker. It didn't hang around. People weren't talking about it as much, and I think it just wasn't as impactful. Nothing against the creators; uh, it just for whatever reason, it didn't come together the way that it had the you know the year before. And this year, they're they're trending back in the right direction. So yeah, uh, I mean, not every story really spoke to me, but there were a lot where I was like, man, I read that; that was really good. Um, sometimes I struggle with Grant Morrison's multiversity stuff, but. Yeah. Anyway, uh, let's get to the creators. Uh, it is the first book we're going to talk about. Love's Lightning Heart is the first story. Grant Morrison is the writer. Hayden Sherman is the artist. Marisa Louise on colors. Aditya Bidikar on letters. Uh, a Baby Makes Three, which is a story um, of Harley and Ivy sort of taking a vacation on this uh, deserted desert island and crush crash lands there. So that's the three. Baby Makes Three. Uh, Leah Williams is the writer. Paulina Ganeshaw. Frank uh, Shitovic, I hope I'm saying that right, Shvitovic, C-V-E-T-K-O-V-I-C, uh, is the letter. Hey Stranger by Nadia Shamas. She's the writer. Bruca Jones is the artist. Tamara Bonvillon is the colorist. And Frank Sitovic, uh, again, uh, is the letter. Uh, Subspace Transmissions by A.L. Kaplan, writer and artist. Aditya Bittekar in letters there. Anniversary by Josh Trujillo. As the artist, Don uh, Aguillo, Aguillo, probably. It's probably um, Latin as well, so it's Aguillo. Uh, is the artist, Lucas Gattoni on colors. Lost and Found by Jeremy Holt. As the writer, Andrew Drillon. As the artist, Gattoni on letters. Teamwork Makes the Dream Work. Mildred Louise as writer and artist. Adriana Mayer on letters. The Dance by Rex Ogle. Uh, as writer, Stephen uh, Sadowski is the artist. Enrica Aaron Angelini on the colors, Ariana Mare on letters. My best bet, Christopher Cantwell is the writer, Skylar Patridge, artist. Uh, I think it's Debla Kelly is the colorist, D-E-A-R-B-H-L-A. Again, apologies if I'm mispronouncing that. Uh, Morgan Martinez is the letter. And then there's the tribute, as I said, to Rachel Pollock. And then there's a little bit of a preview for an upcoming dreamer story or series. Written by Natalie Maines, Rye Hickman is the artist, Rex uh, Glendinning on letters, and Rusty Glad on letters. And then there's some pinups, Claire Rowe with Triona Farrell, Babs Tarr, Angel Slorizano, Travis Moore with Tamara Bonvillon, Noah Deo, Maria Lovett, and um, Brant and Steen on the Youth Center uh, pinup. So... Overall, yeah, pretty strong. Like we said, the foreword by Phil Jimenez is very heartfelt. The first story is the Grant Morrison story. It's a mostly versity story starring this Hank Hallmark character. Flashlight is his name. He's sort of like a Green Lantern analog, but instead of having a ring, he has a, a torch, as they call it in the UK, or a flashlight, as we call it here in the US. Um, I'm not familiar with any, any of these characters in the story. Uh, in fact, I was like... Is this a new character? I had to go look it up. 
Um, I, I think I read some of Multiversity, not all of it. This is where that comes from. Earth 23 is mentioned. I think this guy's actually from Earth 36. Uh, it was entertaining enough. Uh, what impressed me the most was the art by Hayden Sherman. If anybody's seen Hayden Sherman's art in the past, this is by far the most sort of traditionally super heroic his art has ever looked in my mind. Uh, really clean lines, which is not what I'm used to seeing with his work. Um, so I thought the art was fantastic. The color work as well was also uh, really, really good by Marisa Louise. So even though I'm not really familiar with these characters, um, the sense that I got was this feels like a big world with big ideas. And it, it's almost like, man, am I coming around to where I want like a Grant Morrison multiversity series? where he can really flesh out these ideas? Eh, probably not. And I only say that because of this. While I'm interested and I'm intrigued by all these characters, Grant, he can't help himself, would be pulling in all these other ideas without ever fleshing out the ideas that we already have. That's the problem I always have with his work. He has fantastic ideas, and I'm curious about them, and I want to know more. But instead of exploring those ideas, he's constantly introducing new ideas. And even my favorite thing he's ever done uh, All-Star Superman, the one thing that I that he's done that I, I really go back to and, and read frequently. Yeah, it had all these big ideas of, what, of you know, this more powerful Superman. The, the, it just had a lot of big ideas in that story that we never got to explore. And I, those unanswered questions just bother me. That's the biggest thing I have with a uh, problem I have with Morrison's style of writing. But be that as it may, this was enjoyable. It was intriguing. I, I was pulled into the story. I thought it was pretty good. So uh, what were your thoughts on it, Rocky? Uh, this was one uh, I have to – there's a couple of ones I gave this competition, but I was a fan of Grant Morrison's Green Lantern run. Now, for those listening, if you enjoyed Grant, uh, Grant Morrison's Green Lantern run, you will love this. If you weren't a fan of Green Lantern's run, uh, let's face it, if uh, you're either a fan of Grant Morrison or you're not, you always, you, I always joke, well, many people joke that you got to be smoking your favorite recreational drug before you sit down to read Grant Morrison because you'll get a lot more out of it. <laughs> now, I never smoked anything while I read this, but I had a lot of fun. This takes place on Earth 36. I love the, uh, Grant Morrison is absolute, he loves metaphor. He loves dealing with the deep space stuff, the deep philosophical stuff. He makes people think. And this whole thing of Justice 9 of Earth 36 with this uh, with this flashlight character who is in, uh, who lost the love of his life, uh, played by, who was a red racer, who is uh, Justice 9's The Flash, lost him during the original crisis, uh, at least in this story, in this particular iteration of, of, of the multiverse, uh, he he uh, ends up having to uh, confront his version of the Guardians in order to uh, find a way to defeat the Inframan and the only, and nothing can defeat the Inframan and he has to uh, he has to approach this character uh, Prisoner X, his arch nemesis Prisoner X who knows how, who Prisoner X hates only one person more than they hate than this person hates. Uh, flashlight and that is he hates uh the uh he hates 
Inframan and Prisoner X says nothing can defeat Inframan. Uh, Inframan fears nothing. And of course, it's nothing. The only thing that can defeat Inframan is literally the embodiment of nothing. And so uh, in true Grant Morrisian style, uh, Flashlight has to literally obtain and take control of an unbeast, an unbeast that consumes nothing. Meanwhile, Red Racer is racing, is still alive, trapped in the Speed Force, but runs backwards in the Speed Force, pulling back all the multiversal villains and all of history back to the beginning of time. And just when Flashlight shows up, battling the Inframan as the Unbeast, literally as nothing versus nothing, the Unbeast consumes nothingness and only and, and nothing can defeat Inframan. And therefore, it's an indestructible force meeting an immovable object. And then the nothing annihilates itself along with all these villains of the multiverse. And it, this is a lot of this is said, not obliquely uh, artistically rendered, but the art nonetheless is truly spectacular. The uh, the the artistic rendering of Inframan is just amazing as he's as as Inframan shouts as he's dying, he says, I'll fight anything but 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 nothing. <laughs> and unfortunately, the one thing that can defeat him, nothing, is exactly what Inframan has to fight. And of course, he gets destroyed. It's just a cool concept. I love it. And then at the end, uh, in uh, at the end, Flashlight ends up with uh, the love of his life, ends up rescuing Red Racer. And... Um, and it's called Love's Lightning Heart, and since it takes place in the heart of the of a of a star, uh, it's it's a it's actually it's a love story. It's a it's a Grant Morrison love story told in only the most fantastic, fantastical, whimsical way that Grant Morrison is such a master at telling. And so, if you're a Morrison fan, this is definitely the tale and one of the highlights of the issue. And it and it this story embodies that. I love this story because it it takes the best aspects of the of the DC multiverse and it weaves a fantastic story. And I I love these characters. I love these characters. And they happen to be LGBTQ. And I love these characters. I, I want to see more of these characters. I want to see more of these characters in R36. Yeah, I mean, the fact that they're LGBTQ doesn't it doesn't really affect the story one way or the other. Um, yeah. It's just an interesting story, like you said. So uh, the next story is the Crush Harley Ivy story. As I, as I mentioned with Harley and Ivy vacationing on a deserted desert island, uh, Crush shows up, written by Leah Williams, Paulina Ganeshow, artist. Um, I don't really have anything more to say than that. Um, it was entertaining. Uh, I felt like Leah Williams, she has the characterization of these characters down really, really well. Uh, probably my favorite moment in the story is when Crush is talking to Ivy about the relationship that she has, you know, because remember, Crush is in a same sex relationship as well. But Crush is much younger. She doesn't have the same sort of experience, life experience, romantic relationship experience. And she talks to Ivy, that whole romantic notion. Oh, does she make you feel whole? You know, does she complete you, get all Jerry Maguire? And Ivy kind of, you know, throwing some cold water on that saying, look, you got to get away from the idea that you need somebody to complete you, that you're not a whole person on your own. So I I sort of like that. I guess maybe that's Leia Williams' outlook on, on relationships. Uh, but it's a mature way to look at it, and I thought that it rang very true to have somebody who has you know, lived a lot more giving that advice to a, a younger character. So it worked for me. The Paulina Ganeshow art, I mean, her, her art is a little bit more on the you know, cartoony side, animated side, but it worked for the story. I thought it was fun. So what are your thoughts? Uh, I enjoyed this story less, but I, I don't 
I don't, I, I fully uh, confirm, you know, I agree that the message was really good. The advice given by Poison Ivy to a young crush is, is absolutely, it's very, it's very good advice. It's very good. And it's good advice for any relationship, regardless of whether it's LGBTQ or not. I mean, you, the bottom line is you can't help who you love and don't, don't be ashamed of who you love and don't be afraid to express, express it and to show it. And for those of us who, uh, who read the Crush uh, and Lobo series by America Tamaki, this really is sort of, it's almost a de facto fun loving sequel to that because it was in that series where we're first introduced to Katie, who is, uh, the cr- crushes love interest girlfriend. I while I'm not a huge fan of the Katie character, I think she's too boring for a crush. Uh, that frankly, ironically enough, is kind of the point. It's none of my damn business who crush falls in love with. <laughs> she loves who she loves, and and that's kind of the you know breaking the fourth wall and scolding myself, you know. And so it's a nice message. And I didn't. I think the story was boring because all it was was that it all led to that speech because it tra- it was some fun moments trapped on Dinosaur Island. Crush happens to land on Dinosaur Island where Harley and and Ivy happen to be having their love picnic or whatever, and and Harley deliberately sabotaging their ship so they can't get off the island, et cetera, et cetera. So I guess it had some moments, but uh, you know, again, good message. Yeah, hundred uh, percent. The next story is uh, a story starring. Uh, Connor Hawk and Tim Drake, Nadia Shamas on script, Baruka Jones on art. This one was just okay for me. I, I don't really have any context uh, of when Connor was struggling with his identity and his um, sexuality uh, because it's referenced a lot in this story. Apparently, Connor and Tim, I, maybe it happened in the pages of Titans, I'm going to assume, when they were both on the Titans, uh, and they sort of confided in one another. And it, it's interesting. It's People wonder, well, Tim Drake, you know, he, he was heterosexual at the time, uh, but apparently he was struggling as well, but didn't voice it. And there's mention of that here. I mean, obviously he didn't voice it because maybe, you know, DC hadn't decided they want to take the character in that direction. But this is sort of an in-continuity explanation for that. And it makes a lot of sense. I, I think, it, you know, it's realistic and these characters are and sort of struggling to find themselves. Um, so it just showcases that there's something there between these two, a connection that can be explored more in the future. So it goes to something Rocky was mentioned earlier about how there's more substance to these stories as opposed to just, Hey, here's a story about uh, a queer character. And that's the only point of the story. So many of these stories, like we were talking about the Grant Morrison story, you know, wanting more of Morrison playing in that world, same thing here, right? Like this is planting seeds and roots for, more stories with Tim Drake and Connor Hawk. Like I, I hadn't thought about it at all until I read this, but we know the Tim Drake series is coming to an end. And I'd love to have a, 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 a team up book come out of that where it's Tim and Connor out on the road, you know, going on adventures or, or something like that. I think that would, would work. I mean, I, we've had um, <laughs> books like that before with the super sons Damien Wayne and Damien does show up. He's kind of a straight man to these two, uh, no pun intended. Um, but I much rather would have Tim Drake as the, the Robin in a team book, uh, teaming up with somebody else than I would uh, Damien, even though Damien's matured and become uh, much less annoying. Uh, I thought the art by Bruca Jones was very solid as well. So all in all, a solid story. Uh, again, it feels like there's a lot more to be told with these uh, two characters. So what are your thoughts, Rocky? Uh, this was another story that I thought was uh, 
I want to be clear. I this was uh, for for readers who are struggling with their sexuality or about coming out or whatever. I can see this story. I get resonating with them. But as far as as far as a plot or as far as it, it wasn't embedded in an exciting plot. And that's what I that's what I prefer. That's why I like the Grant Morrison story so much because it was we had a really fun, adventurous plot that was ultimately a love story. Here, this is just a conversation between Connor, who uh, uh, Connor and Damien, who both happen to come out at the same time, and then they kind of both kind of resented each other for not supporting the other for coming out, and and I and they they were just two people that were sort of like quasi apologizing to each other and just sort of like you know just saying, hey, I, sorry, I wasn't there for you. And, you know, it was a good, you know, a good cool moment between guys who uh, are good friends and they, they want to support each other and they kind of like drop the ball during a significant parts of each of their lives. And so in that respect, for fans of these characters, this this is a nice sort of uh, fill, it fills that gap in between, in between these two characters that, so that they were actually there. Also, uh, I, I plead ignorance. I, I actually Googled asexuality uh, straight up. I, I didn't know that asexual people call, refer to themselves as aces. There was a particular scene here where Connor Hawk calls refers to himself as an ace coming out as ace and I uh at first I didn't know what that was and so I, I and that's that's what asexual people call themselves aces okay that's interesting and then I read a little bit on it and it was it was a little bit educational for me because I guess I'm I'm not completely familiar with it and so you know hey that's what these comic books are meant to do, sort of uh, broaden horizons and open up some eyes. And uh, in that respect, I, I, I kudos to it because it was, it was a good character-based story. Uh, again, I wanted a little bit more in the plot, but then I got to be mindful that th these pride anthologies aren't just about the story. A lot of it is about the coming out and, uh, and is about the feelings that the, these, these LGBT characters have. So, it's, uh, you know, for that reason, it's just another reason why I was um, – I'm more – uh, I'm more comfortable with these types of stories, and frankly, I'm a little, maybe a little bit more forgiving when there's not as much plot there. Yeah, I mean, it's about representation as well, and yeah, these stories aren't may not always resonate with us. Um, there may not be a lot there. This, like Rocky said, the story isn't embedded in some you know action-packed adventure, um, but it might speak to somebody else um, or or the friendship of other people. And uh, might inspire somebody to come out. You know that's worthwhile, and it's educational, like Rocky said as well. And like I said, it could, it could, it feels like it could be. It feels like uh, again a team up book with these two. I think would work really, really well. Uh, up next, we have Subspace Transmission, Al Kaplan on art, story, uh, Circuit Breaker. I know that's a character we've seen before. I can't exactly remember where um, she taps into the Still Force. Also, the Jesse Chambers or Jess Chambers version of the Flash shows up as well. Um, I, I wasn't the hugest fan of the art style. Um, it's not, you know, clean traditional superhero art, um, and the colors are sort of um, muted as well. Um, but that being said, this is just a fantastic story. It made me want to learn more about Circuit Breaker. She's a sympathetic character. I I was interested in, in learning more about her. I liked her interaction with Jess Chambers. Uh, I liked the Jess Chambers character as well. Um, even uh, Andy Curry, Aquaman, and uh, Mira's daughter shows up here. She's clearly still in a relationship with uh, with Jess Chambers, so that was fantastic as well. Um, so yeah, this was just again another story that felt like 
there's so much more that can be done with these with these characters. So, um, yeah, I thought it was I thought it was a lot of fun, and uh, I really enjoyed the characterization that we got for uh, for Circuit Breaker. So. What are yeah. your thoughts? Well, writer and artist A.L. Kaplan, I thought he did a good job. I actually thought this was a this was a better issue than the than the than the story we got in I think it was Lazarus Lazarus Planet Dark Fate or something that introduces a circuit breaker. In any event, Circuit Breaker's powers are I thought was a little bit undefined, but Circuit Breaker connects to the still force. And one of the things that this establishes is that uh, Circuit Breaker is still learning her, her powers and how to connect with uh, the still force. And, sim- and to just get right to the point, just like s- Flashes have a connection to the speed force, uh, Circuit Breaker has a connection to the still force. Now, the Flash just chambers from the future, from the year 2040, because Andy Curry is old. And if you, if you look at the fine print in the art in the final, in the final pages of the story, you know that, uh, that the Flash from the future, Jess Chambers, who uh, is non-binary, ends up pulling Circuit Breaker with uh, they into or it, them into the, the future in 2040. That's why Circuit Breaker meets Andy Curry uh, in the future. And so that was kind of a nice little, uh, it, was, it was nice to see that because uh, it was sort of a, like a nice call to 5G that never happened, I suppose. But Circuit Breaker is trying to learn how to use the still force and presumably just like the flashes know when, when they're on a different earth because of the change in frequency and the, the vibrations of the earth feels off, they can, a flash can tell when they're on a, different, on a different earth. Similarly, Circuit Breaker will ultimately understand how to be able to detect that, but by reference to the still force as opposed to the speed force. And so this is sort of a learning curve for Circuit Breaker. And at the same time, you got some good, uh, I thought some decent character work by uh, A.L. Kaplan here uh, between, between Jess Chambers and Circuit Breaker. And I, th- I thought it was, you know, reasonably well done. The art was, uh, I thought the art was serviceable, but it, it worked. And I, I'm curious to see, I, I'm curious to see where this goes. I, I think one of the criticisms I have of Circuit Breaker is nothing against the character. I just have my criticism is that artistically, I don't know any, I don't know many artists that could make. The Still Force is such a wishy-washy kind of power. It's not an exciting power for Circuit Breaker to have because it just slows down flashes and how do you artistically render that and it seems kind of boring and Circuit Breaker talks about seeing things beautiful and things are slowed down and and they they try to travel together but every time Flash tries to break go into the past or future Circuit Breaker's power takes away powers from the Flash and so it's a little bit wonky but again Interesting character. The still force is still a power. I think there's a lot of potential there as long as writers consistently cr- use the same rules when they when they craft stories around <laughs> Circuit Breaker, you know. But in any event, yeah. not bad. Rolling rules. Forget about that. Yeah. Uh, up next, we have Anniversary written by Josh Trujillo, Art and Colors by Dan Aguillo. Man, the art in this is so fantastic, so great. Um Clearly not the um, Midnighter and Apollo that that we know from our universe because they're fighting against these characters. I, I've never seen them, so again, if they've shown up before, I'm not aware of it. But there's Queen Lantern, there's Crime Alley, it looks like a Harley analog. Queen Lantern, obviously being a, a Green Lantern, uh, and then Brady X69, Mother Box. Uh, it's just a lot of fun um, and seeing um, Midnighter and Apollo. Alan Scott showing up to drop some wisdom. 
I thought it was just fantastic. Uh, probably my favorite art in the entire book. The art just it blew me away. It was so good. It's digitally painted, just looks gorgeous. Um, I don't know if it's my favorite story. Definitely my favorite art. What what do you think of it? Uh, well, I, I thought uh, w- one of the ways that this story really stood out for me is, and, and a quick synopsis of the story, Midnighter and Apollo, they end up showing it, it's a queer, it's a, it's a parade, it's a protest. Uh, uh, it's basically a, it's a, it's a parade to pro- that's talking about protecting queers and a gay pride parade. But there's also people that are opposing the parade. And so there's a lot of uh, bigoted and hateful people that want to hurt and, and are very prejudiced against the LGBTQ community. Well, uh, at one point in the, in the story here, you can imagine Midnighter, I mean, some of the people in the crowd, I mean, saying some very derogatory things what I won't, that I won't repeat. But it's actually stated uh, very bluntly, you know, uh, you know, in the narrative and it's a lot of hurtful stuff has stayed in, in the dialogue boxes against the queer community. And you can imagine the stupidity. I mean, Midnighter is the type of guy that you don't want to piss off. And you know, Midnighter's uh, sexual orientation, we all know what it is, you know, him being the lover of Apollo. And he went, they're re- screaming obscenities in Midnighter's face and Midnighter is inclined to use violence and Apollo sort of, rem- and, and, uh, there's a great speech by 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 Alan Scott Green Lantern that reminds him of uh, the uh, the the plight of the uh, uh, gay community with the AIDS epidemic in the in the late 70s early 80s, and in in the in how they how the queer community and LGBT community fought fought hard not by using bi- violence but by refusing to be silenced by refusing to be uh, you know they they made themselves known and and that's how they won the day and so that inspires Midnighter <laughs> to take over the airwaves uh, on the entire planet and he re- renews his vows to Apollo and the whole world whether they like it or not every TV on the planet shows a renewal of vows between two men and that's that's Midnighter's way. It's such an authority thing to do. It's like the authority flipping the bird to the world saying, screw you, you don't accept us, you get to watch us. It's a very aggressive tactic by Midnighter, but it's so something that Midnighter would do. I, and I really, really, I thought it was perfect. It was a perfect way to end the story. And I just want to say something uh, that, and this is juxtaposed against something that was said in the, in the, in the fantastic forward that you alluded to by Phil Jimenez at the beginning of this. He talked about, it was very political. He mentioned a lot of political things Phil Hammond is in the in the uh, in the story. In particular, in the last few years, he he mentioned and I don't, I don't know if he has his numbers correct, but it was a pretty high number of uh, something like four hundred pieces of anti LGBTQ legis- legislation in various states all across the United States just in the last whatever four or five years. And the battle rages on. And in the midst of all that, he sings the praises of DC Comics since as long as he's been there, anyways. In his own personal experience, uh, he he praise DC Comics for being at the forefront of of the uh, of the rights of the LGBT community and of doing these types of anthologies and and he also talked about non being nonviolent and and how do you face such an onslaught of people that that want to silence you and then I couldn't help but think of that because one of the questions that Phil Jimenez poses in his forward is he he often wondered how would Superman and Wonder Woman react if there was that type of anti-LGBTQ legislation in the DC universe? And of course, that's just a hypothetical question. And let's face it, people are, are up in the arms about politics and comics to begin with. And so you're not necessarily going to see a lot of that. 
But you see some of it in this Midnighter and Apollo story, and that's why I love it. It's Midnighter saying, I know how I would handle it in the DC universe. And the way he did that without violence, but yet showing some aggression by probably breaking a few laws, broadcasting laws anyway, by forcing people to watch what they, what they wouldn't necessarily choose to. Uh, but I thought it was well done, and the and the the whole the whole story uh, as a whole combined well combined with all the stories here. I thought this was uh, this this was uh, one of the one of the better stories as well. Yeah, unfortunately, his numbers are all too correct, and I, I really believe it's a vocal. It's a very loud but vocal minority in this country. Uh, and, and really we're talking about people that are far to the right, you know, ultra conservative. And, you know, Phil mentions it in his foreword, which is very much worth your time. Uh, highly recommend reading it before you dive into the book. Uh, something I'll probably go back and reread a few times. Um, he talks about fear. And I think a lot of the prejudice, it comes from, a, it comes from a place of fear. Nobody likes, ch- most of us don't like change. You know, unless you're in a terrible situation, then obviously you like it to change. But yeah, we're, we all get we get comfortable and we're used to the, the routine and we like, you know, like to like. Right. Same to same. You want to you can relate to somebody that has the same experiences. It's so much harder to relate to somebody who has a completely different experience, different outlook on life than you. Uh, but they fully that doesn't mean they have any less right to live the life they live. And two people of the same sex getting married doesn't affect my life. I'm sorry. It doesn't. And it, I don't think it affects anybody but those people. So I'm a real sort of live and let live guy as long as you're not actively harming someone else. I mean, I don't condone murder or, you know, other heinous acts because you're infringing on somebody else's freedoms and life and liberty or whatever. But if two people, two guys want to get married, I don't, I don't care. Two guys in Idaho want to get married. I don't care. Two guys in Florida want to get married. I don't care. I don't know them. It doesn't affect my life. So, yeah, I mean – Unfortunately, it's become a huge thing. It's so bad here now. We made felt like we made so much progress, and now we're just backsliding. Two steps forward, one step back, but hopefully we maintain that, right? As long as we keep taking two steps forward and only one step back, uh, we'll keep moving forward. Uh, and it, it definitely feels like the younger generation sort of knows better than us. Uh, you know, uh, they do give me hope, the young people in, in this country. And I can only speak for the United States because that's where I live. Uh, but, yeah, I mean – this is a political, in a lot of ways, this is a political book. It's going to piss some people off. It always does. Um, but these are fun stories, you know, regardless. Like Rocky said at the very beginning, it's not necessarily shoved in your face every story. These are BTQ uh, stories. This one, Josh Trujillo, he is shoving it in our face because he's telling the story of Midnighter. And this is exactly what Midnighter would do when faced with this situation. You know, Rocky mentions the protest. You know, one side saying they deserve their freedom, the other side saying, you know, they want they want them dead. Basically, uh, they spit on Midnighter, and and to Midnighter's credit, he's able to, you know, kind of shrug that off and go, you know what, you're not my type, dude. Apollo's the <laughs> one that wants to really beat the crap out of him. Uh, Alan Scott being the voice of reason, and then yeah, it's a total middle finger. What Midnighter does, he finds a way to to stick it to these guys without stooping to their level, without stooping to their, you know, what they're espousing, which is violence against these people. Uh, you know, he finds a completely nonviolent way to go. This is the world that exists now and either get on board or, you know, be miserable, be miserable with your head in the sand, denying that progress is existing. Like it, it yeah. Anyway, let's move on. 
again, fantastic art in that story as well. The next one is by Jeremy Holt, uh, illustrated by Andrew Drillon. It stars um, Xanthi Zhao, uh, who's the new character. I think she's non-binary, or they're non-binary, I should say. Uh, I don't think they're lesbian. I think non-binary, but I'm not 100% sure. But she's, I think you're so, right, yeah. Yeah, starting in the Spirit World series, it just kicked off uh, Six Issue Limited. Um, and I thought this one was really interesting. That uh, woman shows up as well. We know that she's a lesbian, so again, keeping with that theme. But what was interesting to me, most interesting to me about this one, is the fact that here's a, a character in Jow that's uh, she's both living and dead in a way. And that's what's being explored in her Spirit World theory. And so she's struggling with her identity from that perspective. And in a way, that's sort of an analog for for her sexuality, you know, uh, possibly. She's non-binary. She doesn't identify as, you know, female or male. She can't really identify, am I alive? Am I dead? You know, will her story be a story of her figuring out what her sexuality is? Or maybe she'll just decide she doesn't have, you know, a gender identity. She doesn't, she likes men. She likes women. She doesn't need to establish that that's the way some people are and there's nothing wrong with that but again it's such an analog for i mean most people at least in our reality you know setting aside the dc universe whether you're alive or not that's a state you're either alive or you're dead there's nothing else there's no in between zhao is in between xanthi zhao is in between she could be alive she could be dead she could be both she could be neither like we don't know and that's a fascinating question and something that's really interesting to explore. Um, and then having her interact with Batwoman, who's got, you know, tons of her own baggage um, that's so wrapped up in, in her sexual orientation, right? Like, you can't get away from it with this character of Batwoman, who I've always loved this version of Batwoman. I've always loved Kate Kane. First off, for her, the incredible design. I, I think, I want to say it was J.H. Williams that did her design, but I'm not 100% sure on that. Um, but she's absolutely fantastic in her design, that sort of deep red color, the white skin, the black costume. It's fantastic. But again, you can't get away from the fact that she's a lesbian because it is so wrapped up in her origin. That's why she was kicked out of the army. That's why she was estranged from her family, uh, her tumultuous lesbian relationships. You know, that's not unique to, to a lesbian, but her relationships have been very tumultuous um, and it's sort of defined the character of the trauma that she's been to. So, you know, you, I, I think she's a natural for uh, somebody to play off of Zhao. Uh, and and I, I just, I really enjoyed the story. I thought Jeremy did a, a fantastic job. So um, what are your thoughts, Rocky? I'm going to look up. I'm, I want to be sure that I'm giving credit to whoever created the design uh, artistically for Kate Kane, but give us your thoughts on the story while I do that. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure it's J.H. Williams uh, during his initial Greg, the Greg, I think Greg Rucka was the writer and J.H. Williams in the in, in the backup of Detective Comics back in the day. But yeah, it, yeah credited, credited uh, creators are Jeff Johns, Grant Morrison, Greg Rucka, Mark Wade, Keith Giffen, Ken Lashley. Hmm. Uh, that doesn't sound right to me. Yeah, because yeah, this is saying her first appearances in Batwoman Volume 2, Number 1. That's not right either. No, it's not. <laughs> but in, in any event, I'll just uh, uh, just interrupt me if you want to add something. Yeah. I 
what I, I like about this is that we we not only get we once again get just a conversation that leads to a point that the writer wants to make, in this case, writer Andrew Drillon, and that is ultimately Exanthi gives gives a message to to uh, uh, Kathy, uh, Kathy Kane that um, uh, that she helps Batwoman remind her that the importance of genuine self love in helping to form family bonds even out of a toxic, dysfunctional family relationship. Because what they're doing is that they're, they're, they end up in a cemetery and terrorists always, or, or vandals always return to this cemetery to destroy the, the Cain crypt, the Cain mausoleum, where, where all the Cain family members are buried. And for some reason, uh, Batwoman, of course, because that's her family, she always goes there and she, she reveals Xanthi. She's not sure why she always returns there to want to protect this, this, this part of the graveyard. And it's, it's because that despite her dysfunctional relationship with her own family, because of her sexuality, she nonetheless has a longing for that feeling of family. And Xanthi, Xanthi just reminds her in a way uh, that is uh, sort of uh, flirts with her a bit by transmogrifying a piece of paper creating this beautiful green tree symbolizing a family tree and and it was just a wonderful it was a wonderful act of friendship for someone that Xanthi just met and uh, of course Batwoman couldn't help but comment that I think she's flirting with me at the end so there is a little bit perhaps of a uh, nice little uh, there's an attraction there between the two characters and it's a, it's a really a, it's a nice story and it's a great way for these two characters to meet uh, while also while actually you know, telling us something about uh, Batwoman and telling us a little about something about Xanthi as well. And for some people that aren't familiar with Xanthi uh, uh, Zhao, the uh, of spirit world, it even gives you a hint as to what her powers are. And that is transmogrifying essentially pieces of paper and giving them life and trans transforming them into different images. And in this case, uh, ultimately a family tree, although her main weapon of choice is a giant sword that she wields. But uh, all in all, I thought it was a nice story. And if you're not familiar with either character, this is something that might tip somebody's curiosity. Yeah, so we all know uh, Batwoman made her debut both as Kate Keane and then as Batwoman in the pages of 52. Um, so yeah, it's correct to credit Jeff Johns and, and Mark Wade and Greg Rucka, the guys that drew that. Her design, Alex Ross. Alex Ross designed the artistic oh, look for the character. Right on. Based on some redesigns he had for uh, Barbara Gordon that never came to fruition. Uh, made some changes to make her look a little more Batwoman-ish. Um, so yeah, Alex Ross, like fantastic. Alex Ross needs any any credit for being a fantastic artist, but we do want to be sure we're crediting the right person. Uh, but I would say give J.H. Williams a lot of credit for uh, her his uh, for Batwoman's art look as well because he did have such an influential run on the character in that New Fifty Two Batwoman uh, series. So, uh, all right, up next we have a Natasha Iron story. Uh, Io and Nubia show up as well. Teamwork makes the dream work. Mildred Louise story and art. I thought this one was okay. Um, I felt like Nubia acted a little bit, acted a little bit out of character right at the beginning. Um, I also wasn't aware that, um, that Natasha Irons was LGBTQ. Um, so I thought that was interesting to, to have her show up here. I was like, Oh, that makes sense. I mean, that's fine. Whatever. Um, she's not really a character that I'm really that much invested in. But for that matter, uh, John Henry Irons, I still doesn't interest me that much either. Um, so for me, I, I didn't really have any connection to these characters, so it was just okay. Um, 
But one thing I did like is I thought the art was really fantastic. Not, not necessarily in terms of the style, because it's not really a style. <laughs> it almost reminded me of like a, a Disney cartoon in some ways, like Hercules or something, or Emperor's New Groove, um, which, you know, uh, exaggerated anatomy and what have you is not, not always my favorite. But uh, I'll credit the art with fantastic storytelling, fantastic page layouts. Um, there's especially uh, a double page spread where is in their fighting. So the whole uh, premise of the story is Natasha has created this danger room like program, like X-Men danger room for training. And she's reaching out to different superheroes she knows because she needs somebody to come and field test it. And uh, the only one that responds is Nubia and Io. And that's where Nubia's, I feel like characterization is a little off. Cause she's sort of like, ah, what, you know, we don't really need this, but we'll help you out. And I'm sure it's going to be no challenge at all. And what have you. Um, but there's a double page spread of Nubia kind of getting her butt kicked going up against all these villains. These, they're classic villains. Obviously these are virtual reality versions of them, but Bane and Deathstroke and Grail, Mongol. Uh, and the, the, the layout of that double page spread and seeing Nubia get her butt, butt kicked is just fantastic. So for me, even though the story was just, average maybe a little better than average the art was fantastic especially in terms of page layout so uh, i really enjoyed that what'd you think of it rocky well i i do uh mildred lewis both story and art i thought the art was i thought the art actually fit the narrative i was i was less impressed with the story only because uh well let, let me the concept of the story is interesting i actually really like the idea of natasha irons creating a danger room that's a cool idea in fact, I love the idea for creating a danger room and working in conjunction with the Amazons to train the Amazons. I actually like that. And one of the things is, you know, and you hinted at it here, and uh, I've gone on these rants before. I've, I've, I've kind of did my bitching and whining about uh, how I think the Amazons could be a little bit more, shall we say, man-friendly, given the fact that they're always preaching about equality. But, oh boy, God forbid, somebody walks around with a penis and they suddenly flip their lid. Nubia's... Uh, in a book, in a in a pride book for Nubia to to have a comment where she says, "No invention of man will defeat me." Uh, her mis misandry misandry here is just uh, again, it's just there. There seems to be this idea that Nubia, uh, is, why is it okay for Nubia to speak in such language when she's the queen of the Amazons? I think this is a horrible, horrible characterization of Nubia. That I'm just I'm. It, takes, it, it took me out of the story. It, it's not enough to save it. It's inexcusable in my mind. It's inexcusable. I don't believe that Amazon should be written like this. I think this is appalling. And it, there's no excuse for it. And especially in a book that, that seeks to, to show that so much work has gone on to show about the LGBT community, about acceptance, about love, about you know, you know, recognition for who you are, to have comment like that. Um, and again, I... I can be accused of maybe overreacting, but uh, I'm going to stand by it because this is something that we, we see it in Wonder Woman all the time. And now we see it here again and somehow it's OK. And it's just there's no excuse for that type of uh, comments from Nubia. She came across like a total B.I.T.C.H. And there was just no there's there's no excuse for it. And it's just very, very, very bad characterization. And an editor should have caught it. But then let's face it, the editors know fewer less than the writers do on stuff like this. But beyond that, I love the idea of Natasha utilizing her genius, showing up the Amazons, creating a danger room that can even defeat Nubia. That's really cool. I hope you see more of that in the DC universe. Yeah, again, I, I there's a lot 
there's a lot of seeds being planted in a lot of these stories, like we said before. Uh, next up is The Dance from writer Rex Ogle. Steven Sadowski's art is fantastic. This is basically Catman fighting against a couple of old vigilante villains, Saber and Cannon, who were always fun when they face off against the Adrian Chase vigilante. They're real losers, though. I've never, I've never seen them do anything but get their butts kicked. Uh, and Catman is sort of holding his own against them, but, you know, he is outnumbered two to one. When who shows up but another uh, member of the LGBT community in the DCU, one of the most formidable fighters that's uh, shown up in recent times, uh, Ghostmaker shows up, hands off one of his swords to Catman, and they make short work of Saber and Cannon, and then they have uh, their own sort of recreation, their own dance, if you will, uh, in the bedroom after. So um, fun story in terms of just um, – <coughs> Reminding us how formidable Catman is as a fighter. Reminding us once again, Ghostmakers everywhere these days in the DCU, and gorgeous, gorgeous art. So yeah, it was a it was a quick read, but a fun read. And uh, for me, the art probably second second favorite art of uh, of any of the stories in in the in the issue. So what what did you think? Well, I'm, you know, there's a lot of potential speculation alerts in this Pride issue. There's a lot of firsts. There's a lot of interesting story elements and Easter eggs that, a lot of Easter eggs that might play fruit in, in further stories in the DC universe and the dawn of the DCU moving forward. And to my knowledge, this is, is this a speculator alert? Is this going to be the first time that Catman and Ghostmaker get together? Because let's, let's state the obvious. Batman has his Catwoman. Now Ghostmaker, who's an analog of Batman, naturally has his Catman because he, Ghostmaker is, uh, I believe he's bisexual. He was portrayed as bisexual in, in various parts of his own origin and narrative and what have you. So um, I thought this was actually well done. I, I thought this, I'm, I'm familiar with Catman. I, one of my favorite series, uh, and I'm not the only one, we love Gail Simone's Secret Six. That's where I really got familiar with Catman. He's an awesome character. And he's a, he's a, he's He's an awesome character and he's also a very aggressive character. And I, I don't know if it's, um, this is definitely a softer side of Catman. I never pictured Catman as snuggling up to a guy, even though I know that Cat I knew Catman's sexuality, I, who I, I believe is also bisexual. Uh, I never, he never struck me as the type of guy that would ask a partner if they want to cuddle. But I mean, who knows? You know, everyone has a different side in when it comes to intimacy. But uh, <laughs> I, I, I thought it was interesting, and I think that this is probably going to be a fun. Uh, there's going to be just like you have Midnighter and Apollo. This is an interesting ship. A lot of shippers here might have some fun with this, and it's going to be interesting if. You know, it's funny that we haven't seen Catman make an appearance in Batman Incorporated, or maybe we will now. I mean, wouldn't that be something to rock the boat? Well, will Ed Brisson bring them on board for in Batman Incorporated? That would rock the boat in that series. Although I think it's I think it's coming to an end. But uh, anyways, I think this is. I would love to have seen Catman in Batman Incorporated if if we don't if we don't see him already. But <laughs> yeah, again, Catman, interesting character, a lot of potential for really a B list character before he showed up in. Um what was it, this uh, supervillain Secret Six uh, that really kind of put him on the map um, and made him somewhat of a fan favorite. So, yeah, we'll see how that plays out uh, in the future. Uh, all right. Up next, we have a Constantine story uh, along with John Kent. The, and these aren't, again, these aren't characters where, first thing I think about with John Kent and with John Constantine, both of them, I don't think about their sexuality. I just think about them as a character. I think, well, 
you mentioned John Constantine to me. I think, oh, what a dick. You mentioned John Kent. First thing, unfortunately, comes to mind is, man, I wish they hadn't aged him up. <laughs> you know, I hate to bring it up, but there it is. Um, and then following that is just, he's a character who seems to be fulfilling his potential. So that's fantastic. So, uh, you know, having them here telling the story, basically pulling the wool over the eyes of Felix Faust um, from Christopher Cantwell, I thought was, was really fun. Um, and showcases the power of John and his ability to co- sort of go along uh, with this ruse from Constantine, which totally in character, totally something Constantine would do. Um, you know, basically John pretends that he, he can't defeat uh, a monster called a fetch that, uh, that Constantine has summoned, <laughs> whereas Felix Faust bets that he can, that John can. Uh, John pretends to lose to the monster so Constantine can gain back the soul of a friend of his that uh, that Felix Faust has so John can release the soul to its eternal rest. Uh, and then once Faust turns it up, loses the bet, turns it over, disappears in a, in a puff of smoke, John Kent talks to Constantine a little bit, then he goes and knocks the head off the, the monster, the fetch as it's called, with one punch showing us he could have won at any moment, at any time, he could have defeated this monster, uh, but was willing to take a dive so Constantine could get back the soul of his uh, of his friend. So a lot of fun. Um, the Skylar art I thought was okay. Um, it was it's not as clean an art uh, style, or um, the line work is not as clean as I've seen them do in the past. So I'm not sure uh, about that, but. It's, it suited the story really, really well, and it, and it was fun. Um, fun to see Christopher Cantwell playing in the, the DC universe. So what were your thoughts, Rocky? I, I actually appreciated the continuity that Christopher Cantwell, he built on a story uh, that was in, I had to Google it, Con- Constantine the Hellblazer, Volume 1, Issue 13. Uh, this He's saving the soul of his friend Oliver, who owns Oliver's Bar, and this was John Constantine. Uh, this was a bar that John Constantine routinely uh, visited, and he befriended the bartender named Oliver. Oliver was a divorcee who had uh, had children, uh, and uh, he had two daughters. And Olivia's daughters were stolen, were basically their souls were stolen by Blythe, the demon. And this demon Blythe had the daughter's souls in hell, and Constantine managed to rescue uh, the daughter's souls from hell, but not, bef- but unbeknownst to John Constantine, Oliver had already sold his soul to, to, to Blythe the demon in order to save his daughters. And so, uh, unfortunately it ended like horribly with Constantine and the two daughters witnessing Oliver's being tortured in hell. And that's kind of how it ended. And so it's really nice to see that it has a happy ending that at least Constantine doesn't forget and that he's this is giving some kind of redemption to Constantine. My one regret here is that we never saw what Constantine was really doing because we all tend to think that Constantine's an asshole, a jerk. But Constantine doing this, he's setting the soul of his friends free. And it was his fault because one of the reasons why John Constantine always regretted entering into a, a relationship with Oliver in the first place, a sexual relationship, was because People who get close to John Constantine generally tend to get hurt and usually killed. And that's exactly what happened to Oliver, only the worst type of death, literally the loss of your soul and tortured for all eternity. So Constantine managing to do this and John Kent, that's the only reason John, I mean, that's the story that Constantine would have told John 
presumably, and that would have prompted, of course, John Kent's going to help Constantine hearing that story. Uh, and so I wish I wish we'd have gotten scenes of that story because that really gives resonance to the backstory here. Uh, of of course, in fairness to in fairness to Chris Christopher Cantwell, he he can't you know he only have so many pages in these anthologies. But as someone who uh, who barely remembered the story, I did have to go back and and, and Google it again and 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 remind myself. That's it's a really cool backstory. And, and as a guy who I love continuity, I love the respect that Christopher Cantwell did here. I wish more writers did that with these anthologies because those are the hidden gems that reward readers like us that want to look into the backstory more. Yeah, hundred percent. And Christopher Cantwell, he's so one of us uh, in terms of being just a huge comic nerd and a fantastic writer up and coming. Um, so up next uh, is the tributes to Rachel Pollock, as I mentioned. Um, I, it doesn't say who writes a little forward here, but there's a couple of paragraphs. Again, she was a trans woman, uh, worked in comics, a sci-fi writer, and she was going to have a story actually in this very anthology. Um, but then she got sick and unfortunately passed away. And rather than place her, DC decided, hey, we're going to take the, the pages that we were going to use for her story and we're going to turn them over and let her friends tell some remembrances, do a little um, uh, anecdotal uh, stories here about Rachel and, and who she was. So kudos to DC for doing that. I mean, it's a who's who of really talented people here. Neil Gammon has something to say, Trina Robbins, Tom Pyre. So uh, and, and they're very heartfelt stories, and it's clear that these people loved Trina and her, uh, her contribution, uh, or, or loved uh, Rachel Pollock, rather, and her contribution to, uh, to DC Comics. So uh, the last story, Bad Dream, a dreamer story, exclusive pe preview, again, written by Natalie. Uh, Rye Hickman is the artist. There's not really any, any dialogue here, so don't know what this is about. Uh, other than at the end, we're told uh, Nia Now's origin story continues in the YA graphic novel, Bad Dream, A Dreamer Story. Because what we see here is she is sleeping in her uh, bedroom and is having some sort of a nightmare. We know Dreamer is a character, um, an ancestor of Dream Girl in a lot of ways from Legion of Superheroes. She, her dreams are prophetic in a lot of ways. She can't tell the future. Um, and again, this is a character that debuted in the CW universe on television first and has been brought over to uh, the mainstream DCU. So can't really say more about her than that or say much about the story other than uh, I think the, the artist that they chose um, really kind of suits the tone of the story that uh, Nicole Means is, is trying to tell. Rye Hickman, I, I don't know if that's a man or a woman, to be honest with you. It's Rye spelled like the grain, R-Y-E. Um, but yeah, curious to see that, uh, how that comes together in that uh, YA novel. So anything to add about that or uh, Rachel Pollock's Remembrance, uh, Rocky? Well, uh, it was a wonderful tribute to Rachel Pollock. Uh, the, the, there were many writers that wrote a tribute to her. Uh, also heartfelt. I encourage people to read it. Joe Corallo, Jadzik, Axelrod, Alisa Quitney, Trina Robbins, Tom Payer, and Neil Gaiman all gave tribute. Uh, I do want to give a shout out. I, I, if you mention it, I apologize. But she had a hell of a run on Doom Patrol. Uh, she's got an, an omnibus that, uh, you know, and she, she came on Doom Patrol after Grant Morrison did. And of course, everyone talks about Grant Morrison's Doom Patrol. But what a lot of people don't realize is that the successful Doom Patrol series, the TV series that has gotten so much popularity, a lot of the concepts are from her run 
on the Doom Patrol that followed Grant Morrison. So most people just blindly assume that it was all Morrison. Well, a lot of people know it. Actually, Rachel Pollack had a lot to do with it as as well. And it's it's just very interesting to see all, uh, particularly Neil Gaiman's uh, tribute to her was uh, quite quite heartfelt and uh and just as as another you know not to i don't want to swear but f you cancer you know f you cancer i mean taking too many of us yeah that's a good point i'm glad you brought up the demon patrol thing because again i, I th- you're 100 right a lot of the concepts that people attribute to morrison and i realized he had already left the book he'd already left the book and don't get me wrong all credit to morrison he planted seeds for a lot of things um that rachel bore the fruit of um, so again, uh, I think they're both deserving of a lot of the credit for the success of kind of the quirky, weird Doom Patrol, which is not my favorite version of the team, but it definitely has a place in the DCU and obviously it's, it's beloved by a lot of people. So, yeah. uh, all right, well, that's the pride issue overall. I think really, really good. Highly recommend you guys picking it up. Uh, up next, we have detective comics, number 1072 written by Ram V, uh, Yvonne Reese and Stefan Raphael, Stefano Raphael are the pencilers, Danny Mickey and Stefano Raphael on inks, Brad Anderson and Lee Lufford do colors, Ariana Mare on le- on letters. Um, I sort of feel like I'm starting in the middle of this story. Like there's a big bash about to happen. I don't know what the bash is. I don't know what this opening is. It's Oregon Plaza. Was that mentioned that this was coming up in, in you know, soon? Um, I, I don't know. Uh, this continuity <laughs> and the the pacing of this story hasn't really been my favorite, um, but it's starting to feel a little bit more like a Batman comic. Although I will say, even once again, Batman shows up less here than a lot of the other char- a lot of the other characters. We get as much Nightwing and uh, and Cassandra Cain Batgirl as we do Batman in this, um, but. It feels like it's starting to come together, and uh, the backup story I thought was very good as well. Dan Waters, Things That Must Die, Part 1. Dan Waters is the writer. Stefano uh, Raphael is the artist. Lee Luffridge on color. Steve Wands on letters. Uh, I felt like <laughs> this is Things Must Die, Part 1, but it definitely plays off of uh, what we saw in the pages of recently with this idea of Orgum, the Orgum family and Ra's al Ghul being linked together. This is uh, fleshing that out and giving it a little bit more context. So all in all, one of the better issues of Detective Comics that we've had in a while. Um, I feel like once Ram V's run is all said and done, if I go back and read it, it's going to not necessarily in one sitting because it's way too dense and long to read in one sitting. But, you know, within close, close proximity to each other, not waiting a month, two weeks, whatever it is between issues, I'm going to get more out of it. It's going to make more sense. Um, kind of like a Christopher Priest story in, in a lot of ways. I, I don't think it's ever going to be my favorite because, again, uh, as much as I get plenty of Batman and the rest of the DC universe, this is Detective Comics. It is supposed to be starring Batman. And from the beginning, he's felt like a, a supporting character in his own book. Um, but th- it's starting to come together. It feels like a lot of these threads and seeds that uh, Ramvi has been planting are coming together. And... Uh, Maybe the light at the end of the tunnel feels like the end could be near. Um, and again, it's not that I want it to end because I haven't enjoyed it. The more I want it to end so I have the complete story and can go back and, um, and kind of read it as a you know, complete story and, and see if my outlook on it changes at all. So uh, what are your thoughts on it? 
Well, yeah, it's a double-edged sword here reading Detective Comics because uh, it's it's rather odd. It's a situation where the story literally continues every issue. Now, not every most comics aren't like that. Most comics sort of rehash the same plot points every issue to give you a little bit of a reminder. Ram V here doesn't do the reader any favors. He expects that you've read the previous issues, that you know what's going on. You don't often get too much of a recap. And I don't mind that. I don't mind being challenged as a reader. Granted, I've been challenged reading this quite a bit. Uh, it is starting to come together here. Ultimately, this issue just involves the Bat family, Batman, Nightwing, Bat, uh, Batgirl, Cassandra Kane, and Oracle all trying to battle against the Orgums. We got uh, Prince, we got Ten Claw and Fleshcrafter battling uh, Batman. He defeats them. He's underground in the underground subway, the subway network of Gotham City, which is a set of neural pathways that is that can be set off and given sentience with the reality machine. Batman needs to find the reality machine and ultimately defeat Queen Orgum from basically giving sentience to Gotham. And that, that's ultimately the Orgum's goal. Now, Prince Orgum, uh, Prince Orgum at the end is battling Batman and says, look, Batman, I'll give you a choice. If you destroy Orgum Palace, like Orgum Place is this massive tower that's been built uh, and uh, and the people and all the people of Gotham are, are there for the grand opening in downtown Gotham uh, celebrating this grand opening of Orgum Place. But the Asmir, the people, there's been people in Gotham who've been kidnapped and taken to subways that Cassandra Kane has discovered have been released somehow. The, the Asmir, the, they've been mind controlled and they've turned into these creatures that you can only defeat them with pure cold, pure cold freezing. And so you got the Asmir wandering around. You've got all these bombs planted around downtown Gotham and you got Organ Place. And here we have Prince Arzen at the end telling Batman, look, Batman, I tell you what. Uh, we'll, we'll save the people. We won't, we won't set off all the bombs, but if, uh, if, but instead what we'll do is that you can just blow up Oregon place, destroy this place. And it's sort of like, I, I'm not really sure what the Oregon's end game is here. I know they want to give sentience to Gotham, but the, the ultimatum of that, when Batman confronts sort of like the eye of the serpent, he is attacked by Prince Orzen who says bombs will go off, but Batman can set off explosives and destroy Argum Place, uh, which will somehow prevent that from happening. And Argum Place is exploded at the end. And I, I don't really know what the point is. I, I, I'm not sure why the Orgums want to destroy. Why would they build Argum Place only to, to destroy it? It, it? Was that all a distraction? I'm not sure. Meanwhile, there's some good character work with with uh, commission between Commissioner Gordon and Renee Montoya. Commissioner Roy, I mean Commissioner Montoya, and Jim Gordon. Jim is just a retired cop; he's a detective now, I guess. But he gives advice to to uh, Commissioner Montoya, and he says he tells her, reminds her, look, he, he tries to give her information that she he got from Batman, but Montoya won't listen to God, won't listen to Gordon. And Gordon is disappointed. And you can tell he's kind of pissed off at Montoya. And he says, you know, stop putting politics over what you know is right. Go with your instincts. He goes, I never did. I never put politics over asking the right questions. And that kind of miffed uh, Commissioner Montoya, but it made her think. And so there's some decent character work here. And we got Nightwing and Oracle working together. Nightwing working the crowd, trying to protect them from themselves uh, and taking down some of the R's and the people have been uh, converted with the that R's and whatever. And so a lot's been happening here. And... 
Uh, yeah, and it ends with that explosion of Oregon uh, Palace. This is part two of a, of a story arc called The Fall. So is the Batman going to fall only to be resurrected at some point? I, I don't know. It's another fall of Batman. But this is going somewhere. This is tied up in this, a very complex, larger narrative that we've discussed before. And wow. So I am intrigued. I'm really curious to see where this is going to go. I don't know when this is going to end, when this actual story is going to end. I don't even know when this story arc is going to end. That's the one thing that I wish Ram V would, would sort of, he's crafting a very long narrative here. Um, and uh, finally, I'll let you talk about the backup, but I thought the backup was one of the better backups we've gotten from, by Dan Waters. I don't really have much else to say about the backup other than what I already mentioned about how it, it ties into what we learned in, in a couple of recent issues about the, the connection between Orgum and Ra's al Ghul, those two fam, uh, you know, that the Orgum family and Ra's al Ghul, and the fact that we see that the family of Orgums, they're not, they don't let it go, as it were, you know, um, they, yeah. they clearly heard this grudge. And we see the beginnings of the of that in this backup story. So, I, Dan, I don't, what I was left thinking, I enjoyed it very much, um, and I thought, yeah, this is adding a lot of context to this feud, for lack of a better word. And I'm sure we'll see it play out a little more, and it explains why the Orgums place so much, um, or they're so interested in Gotham City and Batman himself. <clears throat> you know, setting aside the whole retro continuity thing, which I have a, have, I've never liked. Sometimes it can work. This time it's not working because, again, so many Batman stories we would have heard of the organs before now. But anyway, setting that aside, um, I, I, this adds a lot of context. It's really, really good. I, th I thought, I assumed, in fact, it's it ties in so well with what we have been shown with the Orgum and Ra's al Ghul connection previously that I assumed that this was written by R Ram V himself. And then when I saw it was Dan Waters, I thought, man, Dan must be – He's got to be picking Ram's brain uh, quite a bit. They must have talked a lot about what should be in this backup because, yeah, Dan has a great grasp on that context and that history and, and what Ram is trying to do with the connection between Orgums and Razal Ghul. So yeah. what do you think? Well, I just want to say that what's interesting is that this is about a young Prince Orgum who – a Prince Arzen who basically – he, he was actually a really good kid. And when he finds out that his father was killed by Ra's al Ghul, he's still prepared. He still has this, he's more obsessed with this Gaia tree. He's obsessed with protecting this tree uh, than he is about maybe train by, be, by being trained by his bodyguard called named Asim. And the Queen Organ is upset. She wants her son to be more aggressive, more violent, to be more hateful at the fact that her father was uh, was killed, even though the queen herself orchestrated Ra's betrayal and ultimately killing of uh, the prince's father. But the prince is more, he's almost more of a gardener than a warrior. And, um, but he's very good at what he does. He's very determined and he even earns the respect of Asim, his bodyguard. But ultimately, uh, it, at the end, he's, he, Asim is attacked by uh, Razogal's guards, which I, I don't believe they're Razogal's guards. I do think that it's probably the queen setting it up to, so that Asim would be killed in order to provoke her son from being more aggressive and becoming more easy to manipulate and to engender and create more hatred within her son. Because uh, one thing about the, the king, 
the, the, the king sacrificed his life. He wanted to die in the lost city of Urham. And he was a good man. And I think that, I think by his nature, I think his son, the prince, was was inclined to be a very good man. But due to the manipulation of his mother, the evil queen, Queen Argam, he's become a hateful and a vengeful man as well. Uh, but you see hints of the prince Arzam meaning well in his in his communications with Bruce Wayne in the earlier parts of this story, that he's he could have been a Bruce Wayne. He could have been somebody with that was brought up right, but because of his mother, you know, Bruce Wayne had Alfred, but per, the poor prince had Queen Orgham. And so I, I like that. I like those those seeds that are planted there that, you know, um, it's not just genetics, it's environment, right? But uh, I thought I thought it was well done. It made, it, you know, a, a lot of a metaphor for a lot of other plot points and symbolic of, of how, what a difference a, a, a parent makes. <laughs> Yeah, 100%. Uh, all right, moving on. Power Girl special number one. The main story, Dark Knight of the Soul, written by Leah Williams. Art is by Marguerite Savage. Colors by Savage and Maurice Louise. Uh, letter, Rebecca Carey. And then there is a backup story that's um, a preview for the Fire and Ice series, uh, Fire and Ice in Smallville series that's coming up later this year. The DC's already announced. That's written by the same creative team that's doing that. Fire and Ice series. So Joanne Starrer does the script. Natasha Bustos on art. Tam, Tamara Bondalon on colors. And Ariana Mare on letters. <laughs> uh, this is the one that didn't really do it for you this week. And you haven't really enjoyed this psychic power girl. So what are your thoughts? Well, some beautiful covers. Um, the, uh, I, like, I like every cover. The cover I ordered... Uh, which might surprise some people because I'm obviously, I'm a, I mean, who, who, is there anybody who isn't a breast man? I mean, come on, that art germ is fantastic. But I, I went with the Amanda Connor. I love Amanda Connor's art. So I, I actually got the one with uh, her, with the power girl holding up the, the white albino gorilla there with uh, Streaky the cat in between her legs. And uh, it's, it's not as, it's not a, it's not as erotic as it sounds, guys, as it sounds. But in any event, some really great, beautiful, gorgeous covers. And yeah, the Yama cover is fantastic as well. Yeah. Because uh, it has all three of them. I think that's the one I ordered, but I'm not, I'm looking it up right now. But anyway, go ahead. Yeah, no, I mean, it's it just beautiful covers. And even the main cover by uh, Marguerite Sauvage is, is, actually, is really nice, too. They're, they're all very nice, no question about it. And there's even a nice cover. Uh, it's probably a ratio variant uh, with uh, that has fire and ice along with uh, Paige, uh, whose uh, Paige is the, the name of, of Power Girl, the new name that she gave herself. And as far as the story itself, uh, this was uh, – I just found it largely – I just kind of found it largely boring, to be honest with you. But uh, I, it's it, she finally can she Power Girl finally confronts uh, Johnny Sorrow, and it starts off in some uh, some kudos to to Marguerite Savage. She's got some beautiful renditions here, where it's almost as if she's uh, Power Girl is trapped in a, a bunch of almost like cologne commercials starring Johnny Sorrow. It's a series of advertisements, whether it's Sorrow advertising some type of cologne or or uh, any any kind of uh, crazy world where Johnny Sorrow inserts himself in the mind of Power Girl. Because what 
what's what Johnny Soro has done, he's created psychic delusions that are infecting people. And the more people that are infected, it's like a virus. It sort of exponentially replicates this psycho- psychotic delusion and it infects more and more people and it's affecting the heroes and it infects most of the Superman family such that the only people left to truly fight Johnny Soro's psychic spread of these delusions is Power Girl and Omen themselves trying to fight Johnny Soro. And... And in addition to that, Johnny Sorrow, it was a little bit unclear to me. He he somehow has allied himself with the pit, the pendulum, the post, the poet, and the piper, which are all entities that somehow uh, they they excite, frighten, entice, and enliven the the populace and. I guess that's a bad thing. <laughs> uh, although I'm not really sure why, if everyone's asleep anyway, or in some kind of delusional state, I don't know why Johnny Sorrow even needs those other characters because they're largely redundant. They're, they don't do anything. They don't, I frankly, serve the narrative at all other than to take up space and give Marguerite uh, Sauvage excuses to draw more of her beautiful art. It's beautiful art. I just, I think narratively, just, it, it didn't never really, it never really resonated with me. There's far too much talking going on again. I thought it was unnecessary. I, it, if, if, in, in, when you combine all the talking and the dialogue in this issue with all those myriad of, what was it, four, four three or four issues of action comics in the back up there, we, we didn't need this to be dragged on this long to ultimately get to the entire point of this that Johnny Sorrow basically felt for some reason, Power Girl, when the Lazarus rain hit, somehow activated some sort of psychic power that she had, there, where she developed some uh, astral punching ability, and some astral part of her head was activated, and she became psychic. And somehow Johnny Sorrow from Earth Two has always been, is always felt a connection to, to Power Girl because for some reason. He's he's felt that they're birds of a feather, basically, that they they both are alone and they feel alone and isolated and they don't have a direction and they don't have family. And I can I could see what writer Lee Williams is trying to establish. She was trying to create a villain that somehow we could relate to and say, oh, yeah, that's just like Power Girl, except Johnny Sorrow is nothing like Power Girl. And I had I Lee Williams failed to convey. Number one, there was no development of Johnny Sorrow. Number two. I, I never I don't relate to Johnny Sorrow. Number three, there was no connect. There was no connection really that I saw between Power Girl and Johnny Sorrow. It wasn't believable for a second. I, I wasn't even sure if Johnny Sorrow was being truthful. He's an unreliable narrator. Uh, quite frankly, if look Johnny Sorrow, it would have made more sense if Johnny Sorrow just said, "Look, you're hot. You got a nice chest. I figure I'd I'd stalk you for a while." That makes more sense to me than this nonsense of him giving a speech that, "Oh well, you and I have this connection. Come back to Earth too, and we'll I don't know. I don't know what his master plan was. Come back to Earth too, and we'll rule over Earth too as, and you can be my girlfriend." I I, I guess that was it. I I just thought the thing was silly, to be honest with you, really silly. Um, uh, but. At the end, she, I mean, her and Omen managed to, frankly, handily defeat Johnny Sorrow rather easily, I thought. And, um, and uh, that's, and then Superman shows up and welcomes Power Girl into the Superman family. And Power Girl admits that, you know, she basically always felt lonely and Superman, well, okay, you can, we'll start new, start fresh. You could, you're now, I'm, you know, stop being like that page, Super, uh, Power Girl, um, 
uh, and you can come. You're welcome to the Superman family. So we'll see. Hopefully, we'll see Paige more in uh, Power Girl more. And somehow, she takes Streaky the cat. Kara is is the owner of Streaky the cat. Streaky lives with Kara, but she Power Girl tells Kara that she's going to take Streaky the cat, and it doesn't seem to bother Kara. Seems like an ignorant thing to do. I mean, I don't like cats, but if I did have a cat and somebody wanted to take it. Uh, I might be a little bit pissed off, but Kara doesn't seem to mind. Uh, but then we, we did read that one backup feature with Streaky the cat, and it's kind of a dangerous animal to have around, a Kryptonian cat. I mean, good grief, they cause chaos enough as it is. I don't know if I want one flying around. But in any event, uh, I, I, a couple of comments I, I, I'm compelled to make here that, that illustrate and underscore just how disappointed I am with what Lee Williams has done with Power Girl, the lost opportunity here. There's only one page that that hinted at what could have been done and there's a page where it shows that that it uh it shows young power girl talking about i was loved once i was i was once loved so much that my life was prioritized above all else i will never feel worthy of that love or sacrifice never but i'm realizing now that to freeze or falter in the shadow of that love is the only way to fail their sacrifice she talked about her parents she talked about what they gave up she talked about how she felt when she was young we got that in two pages more was said there than in the entire entirety in my view of power girl why didn't you focus on that i i can't help but to be reminded of tom king's issue 8 of supergirl woman of tomorrow how much he conveyed about who kara was and what her background was it was such a powerful issue, and that was in one issue, and Leigh Williams has had plenty of time. Now, I'm not, I'm not drawing an unfair comparison here. Uh, I, I'm being, she's had as many pages or more than that one issue that Tom King had, and this was Kara on Earth 2, and if she's felt that way, if she's felt that loneliness and that isolation, uh, to, to go on this diverted path dealing with John Kent, dealing with Kara, dealing with all this other stuff and not dealing with her actual background and what she was feeling and, and what have you. I just think what a profound missed opportunity here. And I'm just disappointed. And then out of the blue, Catwoman shows up and takes care of one of these, the, the poet characters. Why does Catwoman show up just out of the blue? It just seemed like such, like a, like, oh, I just, I, I guess Margaret Savage said, can I draw Catwoman? Yeah, draw her on page 27 or 38, or whatever. It just seemed odd. This whole thing, like, don't get me wrong, this is not a bad comic. It, 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 it's serviceable. It's not bad. I don't, uh, however, I don't, I'm reading this, and I, all I see is more of the potential that, that, that Paige has, and I, I never learned anything interesting about Power Girl as much as I would like. Although, we, we got Beautiful Art by Margaret Savage, uh, I wish her colors were brighter. I think they're too muted, but her art's fantastic, and the style does grow on you. Uh, as uh, and but I can't help but to make the comment artistically that the page that Catwoman was on with that black, that stark black, I think that looks gorgeous. I would have liked to have seen darker colors artistically throughout this, but uh, all in all, mixed feelings. Fantastic art. The narrative I thought was just kind of meh. So, what what about you? Yeah, mixed feelings as well. I agree with you about the art. You know, Marguerite Sauvage, um, I've said before in the past, her art kind of looks like children's storybook art. She's definitely come a long way in terms of her visual storytelling, her transitions from panel to panel. So, yeah, the art's fantastic. You're completely right about the colors. It's almost – it's a watercolor style. It is darker than I've seen her do in the past, but not as dark, um, especially in the backgrounds. But you're right. 
just look at that Catwoman page, you can see what we're talking about. As far as what's been done to Power Girl, I, I, <laughs> I like the voice of Power Girl. I like the self-awareness. I like the growth that Lee Williams has brought to the character. The things I don't like, I feel like those were probably editorial decisions, you know? Again, I have no proof for that. It's complete speculation on my part. But this this idea to give her psychic powers, that might have been Leia, maybe not, don't know. Some of it apparently is going to persist, her ability to, to punch the astral plane, which is just sort of weird to me. But I, I'm not, I don't know that I'm on board with this idea of changing her name to Paige. Like that that's just so random and out of the blue to me. But I get it. DC, I mean, I give credit whoever did it, whether it's editor Leia Williams herself, for trying to shake things up with Power Girl because, yeah, she does feel redundant. You know, a lot of people get her confused with with Supergirl, with Kara. She's not Kara. So trying to give her her own identity, change her name from Karen, to, which is close to Kara, to Paige, like, you know, it makes sense. So I sort of understand it, but at the same time, it's like, I liked who Power Girl was. Power Girl's been done well before, you know. Jimmy and Amanda had a great run on her. The, uh, I think it was the the Huntress and Power Girl, uh, Earth Two book from Paul Levitz that has you know came out in the last ten years was fantastic as well. So, I think if you'd given the current version of Power Girl a good story, people would have been on board. You never. DC never gave her what she needed in order for her to really land with the fans. And they're instead of doing that, they're saying, Oh, it's, there's something fundamentally, uh, something fundamental about the character that doesn't work. So we're going to change her name. We're going to shake up her powers. We're going to shake up her costume a little bit. And hopefully, you know, we'll catch lightning in a bottle. I, I hope they do because there is a lot of potential here uh, for the direction that Leah Williams has taken the character. But again, I, there are other series or other, I mean, you look at that Jimmy and Amanda series like that. They just recently re-released it in, in a hardcover form and it's been selling really well. People have been asking for it for a long time. So it shows that there's, the character has potential. DC just haven't done it right. I mean, when you use her the way you used her in one star squadron, why would anybody want a character like that? So it just, it doesn't make sense. Um, I did look up the covers that I ordered. I did order the art germ cover, and I also ordered the Amanda Connor cover that you ordered. Uh, <laughs> ratios actually are the one. The one that you have behind you is one of the ratios, and then the two. The that one is not a ratio. That's yeah. open order. Uh, yeah, that one is a ratio, and then yep. the two Tay where she's kind of reclining back. Those that one. Those are the ratio covers. So. You know, I ordered two. I ordered Art Germ. I ordered Amanda Connor. I'm probably going to have to pick up that Nakayama cover as well, just because Fire and Ice looks so fantastic. Uh, as far as the Fire and Ice story goes, it was okay. I, don't, I didn't really have much to say about it. Um, you know, it's completely set up and explains why Fire and Ice end up in Smallville. Um, it's what it's sort of what you expect. Fire and Ice are trying to avert a natural disaster. They're in Baltimore. So of course, Guy Gardner shows up. Um, the, the, the characterization, the back and forth between fire and ice is what you expect it to be with them, you know, best friends, best girlfriends, sort of bickering at times. Um, so yeah, I'm curious what that Smallville, fire and ice in Smallville sort of fish out of water story is going to be like. 
Uh, also thought the art was really strong. Very traditional primary uh, colors as well, which helps to sort of sell the feel of it being very... So I expected it to be pretty funny with this fish out of water sort of feel um, with these two women in Smallville. I, I imagine Ice will take to it a little better than Fire. You know, she's Ice is a little more down to earth. Fire, obviously, a little more glamorous and, um, you know, used to the celebrity with her modeling gigs and whatnot. So uh, anything to add about the backup, Rocky? Uh well, I guess it's nice, but here's, uh, here's what I find really odd about this. Now, I realize that, I mean, first of all, anybody with a brain in their head, if you've been paying attention to DC Comics, or even if you're just curious and you type in Fire and Ice in DC Comics, you got the human target popping up. It's been nominated for an Eisner for a reason. The, the iteration of Fire and Ice, they, they, they've been redefined. Now, they've been redefined as femme fatales. As far as I'm concerned, I got a bias. Uh, now I realize that the human target, that that story is out of continuity. Um, and uh, I get it. But the whole, what Tom King did in his portrayal of Fire and Ice was fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. And frankly, I love this guy Gardner too. Guy Gardner has always been a better asshole than he is as a normal and good or functioning human being. And uh, now that's my bias. Now, even if you say, well, well, wait a minute, if it's out of continuity, we're getting a Fire and Ice series. Uh, uh, it can't be the same characterizations. And my response is, why not? Uh, I want fire and ice. Why can't they be femme fatales? Why can't they be more dangerous than this? This, to me, is exactly what I'm not interested in at all. Yet another two bickering women. One's, one's a complete bitch. One's whining, telling her that, oh, you don't, don't hang out with Guy again. We've, we've done that before. One thing about human target is that ice was quite capable of handling herself against Guy. You know, and yet here, this is this is retrograde. This is moving backward in these characterization of these characters and all just for fun. I realize it's just for fun, but this is exactly I would rather have them not do this. If you're not going to do it right, don't do it at all. Fire and Ice going to Smallville to what? Relax and have have a girl chat. Are they going to be like Paige here and, and Omen sit around and drink tea for three issues and or maybe drink Coke at the local uh, uh, Smallville uh, diner? Uh, uh, this honestly I hope I'm wrong. My prediction, this got boredom written all over it. This was a boring story. This didn't really go anywhere. It wasn't particularly funny. It was very meh. Very, very meh. And somehow, this is getting its own series. Why? And if Fire and Ice, is, Fire and Ice have become popular because of Greg Smallwood, because of that series, why are you making a joke out of the characters in this type of iteration? I can't believe they did this. I don't know who the editor is or who, but this is just, I mean, I, I know you want to give the, the, them status, but, uh, to, and, and a new writer on top of it, I just, I'm astounded by this. I will happily put my foot in my mouth if it ends up being a well-written and funny series. This does not, for me, this does not engender a lot of optimism for me. And I hate to say it. And I don't like the art. <laughs> this, this should be sexy. They should be hot. Imagine, imagine if, if, if Fire and Ice, two gorgeous femme fatales, walk into a diner in Smallville. Please have Greg Smallwood draw me that scene. That would be fantastic. That's what I want to see. I realize that's not going to happen. But I, I don't know how you go from that to this. And, and think that, oh, yeah, this is a great idea. Let's publish this concept. Oh, my God. Anyways, I hope I'm wrong. There's a little bit of a rant there. I apologize. But I, I, I was disappointed in this backup. And I'm not looking forward to this series. But, you know, again, we'll see. 
Yeah, I was not expecting that at all. Uh, yeah, I think it's fun. Like, why, why, why not? You're asking why? I say why not. Uh, you know, JLI was a huge fan favorite. This is the version of the characters we have. If you want to tell a story with ice and fire, femme fatales, you 100% could do that. Um, but it wouldn't be them going to Smallville. That wouldn't work at all. Um, so anyway, uh, moving on. Last book we're going to talk about. Icon versus Hardware, issue number three, written by Reggie Hudlin and Leon Chills. Pencils by Dennis Cowan and Darren Banks, uh, as well as Yasmin Flores Montanez. Inks by John Floyd, Banks, and Montanez. Colors by sort of, uh, Christopher Sotomayor, and letters by Anne Design. Uh, what would you think of this? You mentioned uh, the whole unexpected time travel going sideways or taking the story in a different direction than expected. Uh- yeah, well, first I want to give a shout out to uh, Neil Adams. The, 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 the homage uh, cover to Neil Adams is, is awesome with uh, hardware standing over the defeated body of Icon. I think that looks really cool. Unfortunately, it's a ratio cover, so I, I won't be able to get it. Uh, my, my, my comic retailer never orders any ratio covers because he doesn't have enough customers to justify it. And uh, it's too damn expensive for me to privately order. So, But uh, amazing covers. Now, as for the story... Uh, this was a story of hardware traveling back in time and eliminating slavery. And when you and I revered the first issue. This is the third issue. You and I talked earlier when we revered the first and second issue that this is kind of going off on a beaten path. We did not expect this. And we were a little bit, this is kind of back to the future the, uh, Curtis Metcalf, how can he be this stupid? How could he travel back in time? He's got to know you shouldn't mess with time. But nonetheless, he doesn't care. He's going to go and he's going to do it because it's right. And this story starts off with him and the... It starts off with him in the 15th century confronting uh, out of nowhere Vandal Savage, who was, of course, immortal. Vandal Savage gaining immortality from a piece of meteorite that fell to the earth. Even here, this is Earth 93, Earth 93 being the Milestone Universe. It's called 93 because 1993 was the year that the Milestone Universe was created, I believe. In any event, this is Earth 93. Curtis Metcalf's traveled back in time to uh, in uh, where he's confronted by Vandal Savage, but... Uh, He defeats Vandal Savage and kills him and discovers that Vandal Savage is immortal, uh, but nonetheless maintains the the, uh, cages Vandal Savage in the 15th century and eliminates slavery in the 15th century. Then all of a sudden, while 400 years goes by, so we have 400 years of Curtis Metcalf controlling and and essentially ensuring that there's no World War One, there's no World War Two, there's no Holocaust, uh, there's arguably no American Revolution, but there are still wars. But nonetheless, Curtis Metcalf continues to change the history of the planet Earth. Meanwhile, out of the blue, on planet Terminus, in planet Terminus, there's this uh, organization, there's this group, uh, there's uh, planet Terminus, there's the pro- there's this governmental uh, space agency called the Cooperative, and it's to the health and prosperity of the Cooperative. They detect a change in hypertime. They can detect that something's wrong with Earth, that somebody on Earth is messing with hypertime, and they send this Arnis character to Earth to try to figure out what the heck is going on. Now, Arnis and, and the Cooperative, are they're basically a species, a society that has managed to create a utopia on their planet. And they've done so in a miraculous way. And they're, they're in the Earth-93 universe, 
they're keeping an eye on the universe and they know that something's gone wrong on Earth. And they sort of uh, laugh a little bit because Earth is kind of considered primitive and it's kind of like almost like a natural preserve. It's like, you know, I mean, they're too primitive. How could they be a problem? So they sent Arnest to investigate. Unfortunately, there's also a terrorist organization that sabotages the spaceship that Arnest is on and it essentially... Uh, destroys the ship. Arnest manages to escape in, his, in an escape pod, but but he is retrieved in his escape pod. Four hundred years later, by of all people, we get uh, he, he, he is rescued by uh, by Curtis Metcalf in the year eighteen forty three. Now it's it's now use fourteen eighty three, not A B. It's eighteen forty three under the United. Uh, United, uh, I think they call calls it uh, the United uh, Continent of Africa. So Curtis has created the United Continent of Africa way back in the 15th century. 400 years goes by. It's 1843, and he manages to find the space capsule that this Arnest character is on, and and he basically tells Arnest that look. This is what I did. I changed time. I tried to create a utopia, but I discovered that humans are incapable of obtaining. A utopian society because every war that I stopped there was another war that replaced it and and this Arnest character told him look he goes you can you know you've you have to stop this and and Curtis Metcalf tells him he says you know what you're right your future self tell your future self I'm going to send you back but tell your future self that you were right but even though you were right don't me- don't mess with the past let me don't mess with the timeline right. thanks Audrey uh and uh, so that's what happens. So Curtis Metcalf basically sends this Arnest character back after telling him that he was right, that he shouldn't have tried to mess with time. But in the meantime, for whatever reason, there is Vandal Savage in present in the present day in the in the normal timeline that is fighting Rocket, and Icon comes and defeats Vandal Savage in the present. And at the same time as Icon's fighting Vandal Savage, that's precisely when Curtis Metcalf manages to, uh, time begins to collapse in the present day and lead to the events that lead to Curtis Metcalf being sent back to the 15th century. At that exact moment, Brainiac on Earth Prime in uh, in the mainstream DC universe detects the change in Earth 93 and detects a threat and then contacts and transfers his consciousness in through the bleed to a Brainiac to the Brainiac of Earth 93 to to tr- to confront hardware and icon. I got to tell you, I know I said a lot there, but man, this was a fun read. I had fun with this and this feels like a miniature crisis on infinite earth but a miniature little crisis within earth 93 and earth prime and i i just enjoyed the hell out of this and i don't know i don't know how it's gonna end but i enjoyed the hell out of this and even the art which was a little wonky here i nonetheless i nonetheless really i i enjoyed it uh, dennis cowan on the art and, and daryl banks and yasmin flores montana's there's a lot of combinations of different artistic styles which was, was a little wonky but I thought it worked and I had a lot of fun with it and I'm I'm actually torn because I'm I'm almost tempted to make this my pick of the week because it was such a such an unexpected surprise. Yeah, the art styles are all wildly different. Cowan and Banks and Montanez. You know, Banks, a lot of people are gonna know like, why does that name sound familiar? Uh did a lot of Kyle Rayner, Green Lantern, 
especially when uh, Kyle first showed up with uh, Ron Mars writing. So it was great to see his art back in the pages of DC Comics. Um, Cowan is always great. Montanez is, is getting better. I'm, I'm seeing improvement. So, yeah, uh, I, I do wish they'd picked one or the other. Obviously, it's a big story, so I had to divide it up. Uh, I felt a bit lot like, what is going on here? It's saying I'm reading, but I'm just like, how does this tie in with what we got in the first two issues? And then, yeah, when this uh, this Arcus or whatever his name is goes to Earth and then, you know, starts to make sense. Um, yeah, I you know, sitting in the throne room and he's like, I think I'm your God. And he's telling him, you know, you shouldn't play God. That's what, what, you know, my society has, uh, you know, has learned. It does not allow the cooperative does not allow someone to, to play God. So this artist character, very interesting, a lot of potential, just like a lot of the other stories that we've talked about. Um, so how this is all going to play out now that Curtis Metcalf has sort of broken time, we'll have to wait and see, but uh, I'm definitely intrigued. Um, the one thing, the one little nitpick I have, I had it right from the beginning, right? As soon as Metcalf started messing with time, um, he's supposed to be a genius. He's supposed to be really smart. People that are really smart don't mess with time. They don't go back and try to change things. It doesn't work out. It never does. Curtis Metcalf, have you never seen an episode of the Twilight Zone or, you know, seen a time travel movie or any of that? Ever heard of the butterfly effect? No, man, it doesn't work, uh, and that seems to be what he's what he's learned, right? Even though he's he's the ruler, he's seen as a god, mm. uh, and tried to create a utopia. He learns it's not possible, it's not possible. So yeah, let me go back and try to fix it, and of course everything goes sideways. Uh, you're right, Rocky. Definitely a mini mini crisis on infinite Earth feel. So uh, so that does it for the regular issues that we're going to talk about. Uh, there are a couple, only a couple of collections out this week. Uh, the Power of Shazam Book 2, this collects The Power of Shazam, issues 13 through 23, as well as some crossovers uh, into Superman, The Man of Tomorrow, number 4, Showcase 90, 96, that's Showcase 1996, uh, that's what the 96 indicates, issue number 7, and The Power of Shazam Annual, number 1, Superboy Plus, number 1, and Supergirl Plus, number 1. Uh, and then for all you Steel fans, there is uh, a special Steel hardcover Celebrating 30 years of Steel, it collects <coughs> Action Comics number four, Adventures of Comics 500, Convergence, Superman, Man of Steel number one and two, JLA 17, Justice League Unlimited number 35, Steel 1, Steel 34, a different volume of Steel number one, Suicide Squad 24, and Superman, the Man of Steel numbers 22, 100, and 122. So those all must be key issues. Um, a lot of fantastic uh, creators that are that are listed in that uh, in those issues there. I mean, we're talking Grant Morrison and Rags Morales and Brad Walker, uh, John Bogdanov, obviously um, Dan Jurgens. So yeah, a lot of really really great creators. Uh, so if you're a fan of Steel, definitely uh, pick that up. So I have a feeling Rocky, we're probably going to have the same pick of the week, but you know, there's only four books to choose from, so. It's to be expected, I suppose. Uh, so give us your pick this week. Uh, well, my pick of the week, uh, I want to give, um, I suppose in fairness, there's at least probably three stories in DC Pride that I did really like. So in terms of just, I I really liked Icon and Hardware, but I will, 
I have to be honest, like I have to give pride some credit because I, it impressed me. It just plain did. It educated me a little bit. And there were some good stories, particularly the Grant Morrison one. So I'll, I'm going to go with uh, pride as my pick of the week uh, with Icon and Harbor being a close second. But I got to go with pride because it just, it's, I actually think there's some bang for your buck there. Even though it's expensive, you're, you're getting a lot of story and uh, and most of them are pretty good and actually have some some Easter eggs that will, I think, pay dividends in the DC universe moving forward into Dawn of the DCU. Yeah, for me, it's not close. I'm going with Pride as well. Everything else was good. Everything else was was maybe even really good. I, I liked all the books this week. DC Pride was great. DC Pride was fantastic. DC Pride, uh, again, just you know, purely on the idea of what potential it has for future stories. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm intrigued. I want more. I want more of whatever Grant Morrison was doing in that, in his first story. I want more of, of Connor Hawk and, and, uh, uh, and Tim Drake teaming up. I want more of Christopher Cantwell writing Constantine and John Kent. Like imagine a Christopher Cantwell six issue teaming up John Kent and John Constantine. That would be, that would be fantastic. That story was fun. So, um, and not only that, the great forward by Phil Jimenez, the heartfelt remembrances of uh, of Rachel Pollock. Uh, there's just a lot to like. My, Midnighter, my favorite moment, Mid- Midnighter and Apollo getting married and forcing the entire world to watch whether they wanted it or not. I mean, <laughs> so. yeah, that Josh, Josh Trujillo story. I'm glad you mentioned that. Probably my favorite story, actually, in the whole book. Gorgeous <laughs> art. Yeah, just it, it hit on all the, all the cylinders for me. Uh, so kudos to all the, the creators involved in DC Pride and, and all the people behind the scenes that put it together. Fantastic, uh, fantastic issue. So, uh, all right. Well, that's going to do it for this episode, everybody. We appreciate you joining as always. Don't forget, head over to YouTube, subscribe to Rocky's channel if you don't already. Listen to the audio version all the time. And check us out on YouTube once in a while. Comic Space Boom! Exclamation point is what you need to search for. You can check out the covers. You can see the art as we're talking about the books. Don't forget, ring the notification bell, subscribe, leave some comments. Uh, we really appreciate that. Conversely, if you've stumbled across us on YouTube and you're not subscribed to the Comic Source Podcast, go to wherever you get your podcast from, whatever your favorite platform is. So look for the Comic Source, do a search, subscribe, and go back and explore the thousands of episodes we have in our back catalog. So we appreciate the support as always. Uh, And until next time, everybody, we'll see you later. Catch you later. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening and we'll talk to you next time.